We're traveling uh, with Jesus, Mark chapter 10. Before we actually get into the passage, I'll ask this question just uh, by way of introduction. What if you had the opportunity to ask for anything you wanted? What would you ask for? What if someone who had the power and the means and the ability to give you your request asked you, what can I do for you? What do you want more than anything else in your life? How would you answer that question? Just take a minute and consider, what would I say? What would I ask for? What would my request be? We're going to see that question come up twice in the passage we're going to read today. Jesus will ask this question of two different people. What do you want me to do for you? And that's one of those questions that kind of makes you go, huh, I never really thought about that. What do, you, what do you want me to do for you? And I think the answer to that question tells a lot about who we are, where we are, what we desire, what we need, what we want. And it's going to be interesting to see how the, answer, the question is answered here, how it's asked, why it's asked, and then how, the, how it's answered. So as we start off in Mark 10, we pick up actually in verse 32. This gives us sort of the context of when these questions are being asked and what's happening Uh, to bring this question about from Jesus. Verse 32 says, Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. Not just Jesus, not just His disciples, but a whole group, a whole caravans of people heading up to Jerusalem. Now whatever direction you come to Jerusalem from, whether it's the south, the north, the east, or the west, it's always going to be referred to as going up to Jerusalem. That has to do with elevation, topography, and not just geographical direction. So even if you're coming from the north, you would say we're going up to Jerusalem, even on the map it's down, because Jerusalem was uh, elevated. So they're actually approaching Jerusalem uh, from the east, but caravans are coming because every year there were three feasts that were mandatory feasts for the Jews to attend if they were within a certain distance from Jerusalem One of those feasts being the Passover. And if you know your Bible, if you understand, that is the time that Jesus will be crucified. That is where he's heading. He's heading to Jerusalem, not to set up an earthly kingdom, not to take over and overthrow Rome and and set the Israelites free. He's going there to be crucified and resurrected. So as they head up there, they're following with all of these groups of people, the, the population of Jerusalem absolutely swells during the Passover from all the pilgrims coming in for the feast. So as they uh, followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them things that would happen to him. So Jesus is going to tell them the future. That's one of the cool things about the Bible. The Bible tells you about things, very specific things, that haven't happened yet. How can God know that? Because he's the one that determined they would happen. He t- just, if you, you know, when you were in school, if you wanted to know the answers, where'd you find them? In the back of the book. And the same thing about the Bible. You can turn to the back of the book. The book of Revelation tells you all the answers and all the things that are going to happen. And so it's God, because he knows everything, because he's all-knowing, then he doesn't have to learn anything. He knows the end from the beginning. There's nothing new to him. So he can, with great authority and accuracy, tell us what's going to happen in the future. And so he tells them, guys, Here's what's coming. Don't you wish you, you had someone that could tell you what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day or the next day in a specific sense? Well, Jesus tells them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, 
and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. We'll watch Judas do that in the coming days. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. So he'll be delivered up to the Romans, to Pontius Pilate. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. So these are all things that are told in advance. It's like, guys, now I'm telling you what's coming. So you will be what? Prepared. So you're prepared so you're not surprised, so you're not caught off guard, so you don't wonder what's happening. They know exactly what's going to happen. You know, there are over 300 prophecies in the Bible that, about the Messiah, his, the, the, the Savior's birth, the Savior's life, the Savior's death, and even the resurrection. Over 300, all perfectly fulfilled by Jesus Christ. 300, over 300 predictions, all fulfilled. The chances of that are absolutely stunning. And so Jesus, speaking about himself in sort of the third person, speaking as, of himself as him or he, telling them, hey, it's not going to be a smooth road once we get to Jerusalem. Don't be looking for you know, us to, to overthrow the Roman government and take charge and lead a coup. And then he says, and the third day he will rise again. So he speaks also of his resurrection. Now they have basically not comprehended any of that. So if you ever feel like you read the Bible and you're just not comprehending what's being said, you're in good company. The disciples were hearing this and and it doesn't make any sense to them until after it happens. And we know that's true. The example of it's right here. Look at verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Isn't that a great question? (laughs) You've prayed that way. Jesus, I'm going to make a request and I want you to do it for me. Sometimes he does it just to teach you a lesson. Okay, you want that. But so James and John, you remember who these guys were. Uh, These are two of the disciples. They're brothers. They were fishermen. Jesus called them. They dropped their nets and followed him. Their father's name is Zebedee. Their mother's name, church history says, is Salome. But why, does his, why do I mention his, their mother's name? Matthew tells us, Mark doesn't mention it, but Matthew tells us not just the two guys are there, but you know who's with them? Their mother. So it's actually not them making this request. It's their mother that's actually making the request for them. Now, how old are these guys? You thought being a tiger mom was a new invention. And I could imagine, you know, they're, they're going to ask about greatness. Let, let's just read what they ask for, and then we'll talk more about it. So Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And then they said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. They're, they're asking for a, the self-promoting greatness. Hey, Jesus, we know, like, you're the, you're, the, you're the big man on campus. We know we've seen what you've done. We see, you know, no doubt you're going to do great things. And when you do it, we think we deserve to be right there with you. And now they've come secretly. There's 10 other disciples that don't know that they've come. This has been a secret meeting. It was a, it was a text. It was a private email, whatever it was. Don't let those other guys know. We just, Jesus, we've been, you know, we're brothers. And mom is there actually petitioning for them. You know, John, possibly as young as 18 years old, and mom's still involved in his life. If that's your story, we can help you with that. We got counseling for that. And she's still calling the shots. And you can imagine maybe as a mom, you know, maybe she, maybe we don't want to look at it all negative. Maybe she had hopes for her sons. Maybe she's seen the rabbis in Jerusalem. And maybe she's seen, 
you know, the, the, the wealthy. And she said, you know, I wish I could have given my kids better than just being fishermen. And maybe now's a chance that they can actually make something of their lives. You know, maybe they can, you know, rise up through the ranks and, and be somebody's. And maybe there's a good intention behind it. They say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Interesting question. He doesn't rebuke them for it. He doesn't say, well, why? that's a dumb thing to say. You know, you should tell me first and I can decide. He just says, well, okay, what do you want me to do? Huh, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? You know, you know, Jesus says to you, you have not because you ask not. And whatever you ask, I'll give it to you. You know, Jesus says the same thing to you. To Jesus, I'm going to ask for something and I want you to give it to me. He says, okay, what is it? Huh, well, there's another, a rider on that that says, whatever you ask in my name, that I'll give to you. So you can pray amiss. You can pray wrongly. James tells us about praying wrongly. He says, why aren't my prayers getting answered? Well, there can be a number of reasons why you're seeing your prayers not get answered. One could be you're praying for the wrong things. James said, you have not because you ask not. And when you do ask, you don't receive. Why? Because you pray amiss. Because you pray uh, very self-driven, self-promoting prayers. Now, don't hear me say you shouldn't pray for yourself. You should pray for yourself. And if you don't, your spouse will. Because you need prayer, and you need to pray for yourself. But if you're praying for very self-centered things, things that only benefit you, things for your own promotion, then you might not get the answers to those, because that's not according to Jesus' will or his name. See, but if you pray, Lord, help me to be more giving. You can pray, Lord, I want more money. I want to know what it's like to be rich and famous. That's one kind of prayer. You think God's going to answer that for you? Only if he wants to get you. Only if he wants to teach you a lesson. But you could pray, Lord, make me generous. Would that be according to Jesus' will, Jesus' character? Is he generous? Absolutely. And we'll see here, you could pray, Lord, make me a servant. Would that be a prayer that Jesus would say, oh, I've been waiting for you to ask that. I'd love to answer that prayer. Yeah, sure. So these are the kind of prayers, but they're not praying for those things. They're praying, Lord, we want to ride on your coattails into glory. We want to be famous with you. We want to build our identity around your greatness without actually ever doing anything ourselves to earn it. And so he says, they say, well, what's, what's your request? We want to sit one on your right hand and the other on your left hand in your glory. And when you're famous... We want to be right there with you. One in the seat of power or prominence. The, the right hand is the seat of priority. And the left hand is the secondary seat. So these are the top two places in Jesus' cabinet as he becomes a leader. And now Jesus doesn't, he surprisingly, he doesn't rebuke them again. He says, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? He says, hey, you, you're not, I hear what you're asking for, but before I answer it, are you sure you understand what you're asking for? Because in Isaiah 53, Jesus is not known as, the Messiah is not known as the successful servant, the powerful servant. What's he known as in Isaiah? The suffering servant. So when they're saying, Jesus, we want to be right there with you in your glory, he's saying what you're asking for is, can I be right there with you in your suffering? They go hand in hand. They're inseparable. Because I'm not sure you understand what you're asking for. That's like saying, God, 
give me patience. I said, I, I can bring, you know how patience is developed, right? Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. So when you say, Lord, I really could use more patience, he's saying, well, I guess what you're asking for is more trials. Want more patience? We can, we, can, we can work on that. James, John, I hear what you guys are asking, but I'm not sure you understand exactly how that happens. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? I mean, what is he talking about? Like a glass of water? Or what? Remember in the garden, Jesus prays, Father, if it's possible, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. What cup was he about to drink? The cup of God's wrath poured out as a penalty, a punishment for the sin of mankind. He's going to suffer a crucifixion. He says, hey, and, and in that prayer, he pray, he's sweating great drops of blood. The pressure was overwhelming and enormous. And in that moment, he says, God, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So hey, hey, is that the cup you guys are ready to drink and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? He says, hey, guys, I'm going to be overwhelmed with the sufferings on behalf of mankind. Is that, you want to be right there with me in that? That's what baptism means. It means to be immersed in or to be overwhelmed with. Now, you'd be thinking that they would go, oh, boy, we didn't realize that. We, didn't, we don't understand that. But instead, they say, we're able. I mean, John is probably 18 years old or so. So you can understand that. Yeah, I can do it. There's nothing I can't do. No doubt a naive answer. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those whom, for whom it is prepared. He says to them, actually, you, you said we're able? You're right. You are going to go through some sufferings. James will become the first martyr of the church. and You can read about that in Acts chapter 12. The apostle John, probably the youngest of the apostles, they attempted to kill him during one of the later Roman persecutions by boiling him in hot, boil, well, boiling in hot, kind of go hand in hand, that's redundant, by boiling him in oil. He did not die, so they exiled him to the island of Patmos, where he uh, wrote the book of Revelation. And so he, again, for their faith, they would suffer, but he says the right hand, the left hand, those aren't mine to give, they're prepared for certain people. Now think about it, when Jesus was crucified, coming into his glory, who was on his right hand? Who was on his left hand? Two thieves. One of them said, remember me. Remember me. And he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Remember when you come into your kingdom. Hey, you'll be with me in paradise. The right hand, left hand, guys being crucified were next to him. And when the ten heard it, verse 41 says, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. You bet they did. These guys were being coercive. They were being uh, very sneaky, going to Jesus privately, saying, hey, Jesus, you know, we're, we're just, we've seen the other ten guys, and they're just not as smart as us. We really think we're the ones that really should be there. And now the other guys hear of it. That just causes division, causes destruction. I mean, they were always arguing about who was going to be greatest, you know, which one was the greatest disciple, who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. They had real issues with that, didn't they? So Jesus takes this as an opportunity for teaching. Jesus called them, verse 30, 42, to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. 
But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus sets them straight. He says, James, John, all of you guys, listen, you knuckleheads. Now, I said that. I don't think Jesus said that. But he says, hey, the way my kingdom operates, the way my church operates is not like things in the world. You go to Barnes & Noble. Yesterday, we did something beyond stupidity. We actually went to Richmond and went shopping. I don't know why we did it, but we do it, and it's crowded. But I got to spend some time in Barnes & Noble, which I love. I do love Barnes & Noble. I love looking at books. Uh, and, and there I went to the leadership section because I knew what I was teaching on today. I was just praying about it, thinking about it all day. So I said, let me go find the leadership section. And there is no end, a whole volumes on leadership, all kinds of things, how to live a better life, how to be a great leader, how to do this, how to do that, how to get ahead, how to be great. I mean, there's no end to the... And I want you to know that Jesus also has written a paragraph. You see, he wouldn't sell it, Barnes and Noble, because it's only a paragraph. That's all you need. And it's called servant leadership. It's called servant leadership. In, in the kingdom of God, it's not like the world. In the world, those that are in leadership get there. How do people get there? They get there by putting others down, by oppressing others, by having to compare with others. That's how you get into leadership because you got a claw. It's a dog-eat-dog world, right? I mean, I got to claw my way there. I got to step on people. I got to... It's an election year. Are we going to see the presidential candidates looking to serve one another? If we are, then, then you'll, you'll wake up and you'll realize it was a dream because that's not the way it works in the world. People get into leadership positions. They have power. They have money. They, have, they, they abuse those things. They step on people. That's what he says here. You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. They exercise authority. They subdue others to become great. That's how the world works. We used to say when I was uh, younger, we used to say to be the man, you've got to beat the man. Does that make sense? To be the man, you've got to beat the man. That's how it works in the world. That's how the Gentiles, then once you become in leadership, you have to stay in leadership by taking care of anybody else who might threaten your leadership. By destroying them with lies, by destroying them with your power, by whatever means necessary to hold on to you. That's why leadership is so hard when you do it the world's way. Because there's always someone gunning for you. And it just gets very frustrating and discouraging and difficult. And it produces um, weird things in a person when you get a lot of power. It's very corrupting. And people that are, they're great ones. That word for great is mega in the Greek. Mega people, mega personalities, megalomaniacs. Have you heard that word before? People obsessed with their own power, a megalomaniac. You don't find people being mini-maniacs. I'm not, I'm obsessed with my insignificance. You don't find people having delusions of insignificance. They have delusions of grandeur. Inside of every person, there is a, do- a desire to be great. There is. You know it. You, you're, you're the person that catches the touchdown. You're the person that scores the goal. You're the person that scores the account. You, want to, you vision yourself that way. And in the world, it's the great ones, those mega ones, the ones that are of great stature, 
that get there and that do that by exercising authority over the people that serve them. That's the way it can become in the church, can't it? That's not Jesus' way. And that's what he says, verse 43, it shall not be so among you. It's not that way. In the church, in God's kingdom, things are different. He says, actually, whoever desires to become great, same word, whoever desires to become mega, among you shall be your servant. Interesting, you know what the word servant is? In Greek, it's diakonos. It's it's the word that means a table waiter. We get the English word minister. Huh. Minister is a servant. So the funny thing to me is, you know, I I just tell people, call me Steve. You know, what should we call you? Well, some people like to call me Pastor Steve, and that's okay, but I don't call you, you know, Electrician Bob or Nurse Ann. You know, pastor is the word that means shepherd. It describes more what I do than who I am. I say, just call me Steve. I mean, they called Jesus, Jesus, right? So just call me Steve. You don't, you know, but I understand it's a, there's a lot of Steve, so Pastor Steve, sort of, which Steve are you talking about in the church? But I know when someone's new to the church, because they'll say, oh, are you Reverend Steve? <laughs> say, wow, you are new here, right? Nice tie, you know? I'm <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, reverend means one who is to be revered. That's what reverend, when you say to someone, hey, you're reverend so-and-so, that means this is a person to be revered. And Jesus said, actually, the ones who are to be revered are the ones who are the servants. They're the ones that are great, the ones who are literally ministering. So in church, the leadership doesn't exist to be served by the body. We don't sit in the room and come up with a thousand things that you guys should be doing. We don't have our plan, and here's how you should carry out our plan, and we've got to press you for money and press you for this and press you for that. External pressures to do, do, do. That's not the way it works, not in God's kingdom. The leadership of the church exists to serve the body, to serve the body, and to encourage and develop you. This is what Ephesians chapter 4 says, so you can do the works of ministry. We want to help you be better servants. We want to equip you to serve and to do the things Christ is calling you to do. That's why we exist. That's what the financial role of the church is. That's what the leadership role of the church is, to feed and encourage and develop you to serve Christ, not to be served by you. Now, we had plans for a helipad over here for my helicopter, but somewhere those got lost in the plans, so... Whoever desires to be great among you shall be your minister, your servant, your table waiter. And you understand that picture, right? What it means to be a waiter? Have you ever worked as a waiter or waitress? I mean, you, you're there. What can I get you next? How can I help you? What do you need? Can I fill your water? Here's your food. What, and you're, you don't expect them, you know, you don't sit there on the stool sharpening your, you know, your fingernails or cleaning your, and go, and then people are sitting at the table. And where's our food? That's in the kitchen. Go on and get it yourself. Go on, go on. What are you looking at me for? Like I'm supposed to bring it to you or something? Like I'm supposed to be your waiter or servant? It's funny, you can tell a lot about a person when you ask them to do something that they don't really feel like doing. You can tell whether or not they really have a servant's heart. See, it's not just about serving. It's about having a servant's heart. Having a servant's heart. There's a, do you know there's a difference? Anybody can serve. 
But what Christ is looking for is that same heart that's in him is having a servant's heart. That means that you might say, well, I'm not sure where I can serve around here. Well, if you have a servant's heart, finding a place to serve is easy. Anywhere becomes a place of service. And the huge lesson, you know, I, my kids, the one thing I've tried to encourage them is to just be a servant wherever you are. If you're in school, instead of competing with your classmates, serve them. Serve the teacher. You want to watch a teacher fall off his or her stool or something, you know, when, when a kid, a 16-year-old, 15-year-old, 14-year-old kid comes in and says, hey, how, what can I do for you today? <gasps> you know, that's like, huh? Kid, kids don't, you got to take my pulse. Kids don't ask that kind of question. Matter of fact, speaking of, one of the challenges with youth is uh, so much youth culture encourages them to be self-serving. And then youth can become uh, ingrained in thinking everything revolves around them. Everything in life is about doing for them and giving to them, which I understand we're called at home to serve one another. Husbands, serving your wives instead of demanding to be served. Wives, serving your husband. The Bible says through love, serve one another, right? And that means the kids have a role to serve too. Here in this fellowship, it's important. It's not just good because we need it. It's good for your soul to be a servant. Various national commissions have recommended that young people become involved in community service activities. A study by the Search Institute asked 10,000 young adolescents the following question. By the way, not a Christian book. Reclaiming Youth at Risk. Not a Christian book. This is what the, the, what the world is beginning to recognize. 10,000 kids asked the question, think about the helpful things you have done in the last month for which you did not get paid, but which you did because you wanted to be kind to someone else. Think about the things in the last month you did because you saw a need, you saw someone in need, and you just decided to help. Not because it would look good on your resume, not because it was for your college application, not because we were going to make money at it, just to do an a, a act, a simple act of service. Do you know what the kids answered, 10,000 kids? You can do the math. Three quarters spent less than two hours helping others in the previous month. Less than two hours all month doing something for somebody else. A third of those said they had done nothing at all. Not a single thing. And we wonder why the youth culture, why kids now are cutting themselves, discouraged, depressed. If their whole purpose in life is to make money so they can consume, ask your kids, what do you want to do for a living? Oh, I want to be this, I want to be that. And then ask them why. Why do you want that? Well, because I need a secure job so I can make money, so I can buy stuff, so I can be happy. But Jesus is telling you the key to happiness is service. You can do that wherever you are. What, what would you do if, if your son or daughter said to you, well, you said, well, what job would you like to do? What would you like to do in the world? Well, I want to do this. Why do you want to do that? Because I want to help people. Just, you just start to cry right there. Just melt in a puddle. Because I want to help people. Well, you know, those people don't make that much money. I know, but I don't really care about money. What I care about is a purpose in the world where I help people. Imagine that. That'd be radical, wouldn't it? If you can teach your kids, if you can teach yourself, if you can model it, be a servant. Whoever desires to be first shall be the slave of all. The key to being a slave you, your will is sort of wrapped up in the will of your master. You don't have your own will. Your will 
and your joy. And this is, look, this is the, I'm giving you the way, if I could just encourage you, this is the way off the hamster wheel. This is the way out of that dog-eat-dog world. Nobody is competing for last. And so you can have it all to yourself. There was a girl, she was applying to college. 15,000 applicants to this college. And every college applicant said, well, I deserve to be here because blah, 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 blah. Resume, resume. I'm a great leader. I'm going to do great things in the world. And this girl, she just said, you know, I, I, I don't know how to, you know, I don't have a whole lot of skills and I just, I just want to serve. And she got in. And she saw the, 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 uh, the admissions counselor, saw her on campus and said, you know, I just want to tell you, your application stood out from the rest. And she said, oh, really, why is that? She said, you know, because we had 14,999 leaders coming to this school, and we thought they ought to have one person to follow them. Another person put it this way, everybody wants to ride as the king or queen on the homecoming parade, in the homecoming parade, but no one wants to show up to decorate the float. When you're a slave, when you say, hey, and the word slave in the Greek interestingly means Slave, just in case you were wondering. Slave of who? Slave of all. That means my, I lose my desire, my will to promote myself. I lose that in promoting and building up others. And this doesn't mean you can't ever be successful in the world's eye. I mean, you, can, you might be a CEO. And I pray that as a CEO, you have a servant's heart. There are some great... CEOs of big companies that still understand what it means to serve. You can't, Jesus says the way of being a leader is to be a servant. And when you become a servant, that's when you actually can be a leader. To be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man, in case you're going, well, that must apply to somebody else, not to me. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The word for, it's a little insignificant word. You might want to circle that and put there instead of. That's what that word means. For or against or instead of. Jesus didn't come to be served. And you think if anybody could have come to be served, it could have been God. I mean, what, you know, here's God coming up, you know, coming into the world. You'd think he'd be born into a family where they had lots of servants. He's born poor. Where, they, where he could demand and call for anything he wanted to and it'd be done for him. And he says, that's not why I came. That's not why Christmas exists. I didn't come into the world so I could just get off some kind of pride ride about how many people serve me. The question is, how many people do you serve? And to give my life a ransom. You've seen the movies, the uh, kidnapping movies where someone gets kidnapped and they're held hostage. And then, someone, you know, then the police and everybody else has to try to you know, work out a ransom deal. We want $2 million. And you, you know the story. Well, in Jesus' story... It's you that's a hostage, and you're a hostage to sin. And there is no amount of money that we can give sin to buy you out. You're stuck there. The only thing that will work is a hostage exchange. One life for another life. And Jesus says, I gave my life of infinitely greater value than yours. I'm giving my life in exchange for yours, my valuable life. I'm exchanging so that you can go free. And, and, and sin accepts that trade. God accepts that trade. And that's exactly what's being said here. It's a substitution. Now, 
in the last few minutes, we'll look at one more quick story here. Verse 46 says, Now they came to Jericho. As he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. So there's actually two guys here. Another gospel writer tells us that there were two, but this fellow Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, that's what his name means, Bar meaning son of Timaeus, is sitting on the road begging. Uh, He was blind. Many would have thought it was a punishment of God for him. Some say Jericho is a place where there was actually a center for treating uh, eye diseases. In that culture, there were a lot of eye diseases, both from birth or from the sun glaring off the sand or from uh, issues with sand blowing into people's eyes. Just a lot of eye-related issues. And this guy has been blind. We don't know for how long, but he's relegated to a life of begging as people were on the, uh, the road to Jerusalem. Probably many blind people along that road as well. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So the buzz has created, the, the caravan is going to Jerusalem, and somebody recognizes Jesus and his disciples. And so the buzz starts to, to go through the crowd. Hey, that's Jesus. Jesus is on his way by. Jesus is coming. And this fellow, Bartimaeus, Here's that. And he says, hey, i got to catch this guy. I mean, I hear he heals people. And I could sure use a healing. So I can't just let this opportunity pass. i got to take advantage of it. And so he begins to scream out, cry out loudly, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He doesn't say, Jesus, son of David, I'm a good man. I do good things. I deserve a healing. Is that what he says? He says, have mercy on me. I'm poor. I'm blind. I'm a beggar. I have nothing. I'm helpless unless you do something to help me. That's the way to come to Christ. Forget all that garbage you want to try to sell yourself to God on. Here's why you should love me. I know you've had to do that in the human world. You've had to sell yourself to people to get them to love you. You don't have to do that with God. God is not like people. He loves you because he is love. And so he cries out, have mercy on me. And then many warned him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David is his messianic title. And instead of, they they tell him, Bartimaeus, and I'm going to say this with all truth, and and, uh, they say to him, shut up. That's exactly what they're saying to him. It's imperative. Be quiet. And instead of, he says, oh, sorry, I didn't, I didn't want to cause a stir. He actually screams all the louder. No one is going to keep him from getting Jesus' attention. And, you know, week after week, after month, after year, we invite people to know Christ. And many people have sat in the seats you're sitting in and said, you know, I know I need to go forward. I know I need that. I know I need to respond now. But what will people say? But what are people going to think? We're going to think you're a helpless loser like us and you need Christ. That's what we're going to think. We're going to think, thank God, another helpless loser found Christ. So we can stop ruining his life and the lives of those around him and finally know the truth and get saved and be whole. We're going to think, praise the Lord that you didn't let anything stop you. Embarrassment from from being saved. That's what we're going to think because we're going to think we did the same thing one day. And so now Jesus stood still. This is the kind of thing that stops Jesus in his tracks. He stands still, and he commanded him to be called. They say, hey, where is that guy calling out to me for mercy? 
I want to see him. I want to meet him. And then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer. Literally, be courageous. Be encouraged. Rise. He is calling you. Hey, the ones that were telling him to shut up are now telling him to get up. He's calling for you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, Here it is again. What do you want me to do for you? Huh. What does a blind beggar ask Jesus for? I could use 10 bucks for dinner tonight. That's short. Now here's a guy who's blind, but he ain't short-sighted. He was blind, but he saw more than everybody else around there did. He was blind, but he doesn't ask just, I mean, what do you do? You're begging. What are you asking people for? You're asking them for alms, for money, for something so you can get food, so you can get your next meal. So if he was short-sighted, he could have just said, Jesus, I just really need some money for today. How about a little for tomorrow too? But what's he say? He doesn't say that. doesn't ask for that. What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, that I may receive my sight. There are a lot of people that have their biological, their physiological sight, but they are blind. The eyes of their heart have been blinded. So there's a physical and there's a spiritual, and maybe that's the prayer. Here's a prayer you can pray and not be praying wrongly. You can say, God, I need to see through spiritual eyes. I need to see the truth. I need to understand the world I live in. Because you know people. You know, you live with them. They're your relatives. They're your co-workers. And they have physical sight, but they are just blind. Blind to themselves, blind to the truth, blind to what the world is all about, blind to what life's about. They're chasing after this. They're chasing after that. And you just go, they're so blind. They're so blind. And, and maybe some in here have been living just blind, and the Lord is really speaking to you, that I want you to see this prayer of this man, and you might want to pray to Lord, that I may receive my sight. I know I need to see. And that's what he prayed. And then Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. He doesn't say go your way, your works have made you well. He just says, he, he just put himself out there to Christ, just like so many we've read about. Just like so many, just like that woman who had the issue of blood and came to Jesus for healing. Just like that woman, the Gentile woman who was content just with the crumbs of leftovers. Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. Again, the first thing he would have seen was Jesus. And now he becomes a follower. That's awesome. That's awesome. So. Uh, I don't know what the Lord is speaking to you. I'm going to invite uh, Jacob and the praise team up to close us with a, uh, a final song. You know, the Word of God, see, you've got a voice in your head. You, you, we all have it. Don't feel odd because we've all got this voice. We've got voices in your head, right? You've got this self-talk telling you what to do, what's right, what's wrong. And, and before you know the Lord, before you have the Word of God, there's only one voice in your head. And it's your flesh. It's what you want. And then I found when I got saved, another voice entered in. And now there's a competition in my head. It's a battle. I want to be recognized. I, how many of you have ever said, I wish people would appreciate me? I wish people would just acknowledge me, would recognize me. That's that one voice. Self, 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 self. And then God's voice comes in and says, Steve, just be a servant. Don't look for recognition. Don't look for pats on the back. 
Don't look to please people in that way. Just serve people. If you see someone who needs a door open, open it for them. If you see a need in church, just fill it. Don't wait to be asked. Don't wait to be coerced. When you live that life, you will find joy and purpose and healing begin to creep back in. It's just true. So ask yourself as we close out today, do I serve or am I a servant? Or maybe neither one of those. And I want to suggest to you the Jesus style of servant leadership. Give it a try. You might be surprised. Amen? Amen. Father, as we close out, I pray for this whole fellowship. I pray for the Christians all across this community who have been known for demanding their rights, putting others down, judging others. Lord, I pray that you make us servants. That we might learn what it means to serve our neighbor even if he or she is gay. What it might mean to serve our neighbor even if they're an atheist or a Muslim or whatever. That we might be servants. Teach us these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.